Well, it is true he will walk with us in the garden of the good days. He'll walk with us in the garden of good times and sunshine when the birds are singing and everything's okay. He'll be with us in those days. But he'll also be with us for he's not just a fair weather God. He'll be with us in foul weather. He'll be with us when we're alone, when we're afraid. I've been alone and I've been afraid. I can remember one time specifically, back in the 60s, I'd been preaching in Eastern Europe. I'd come from Poland with John David Hopper. I'd come to Prague, Czechoslovakia, and preached there in the Baptist church with Pastor Svets. And then Pastor Svets had to leave town. John David had to leave early. And so I was left there in Prague in the dark days of communist domination of that city and of that nation. I was left there alone for an afternoon and an evening. And I was sitting there in the hotel lobby, Intercontinental Hotel. And I was really feeling alone. I, I got to thinking, I do not know one single person in this city. And I cannot speak their language. And if I get sick, what will happen? If I have a problem, who do I call? Suddenly the whole thing just kind of engulfed me and I really began to feel sorry for myself. And then a Swiss ski team came in and all their colorful gear and they checked into the hotel and they were having a great time laughing and enjoying one another and boy, they maybe even feel worse <laughs> because I felt like, good night, I'd like to be a part of that group because that would, that would help me. Uh, but they, they checked in and left and there I was, left alone with my, my old personal pity party feeling badly for myself. And then in that hotel, they had music coming through, like Muzak coming through in the hotel. And it had been playing, but I'd not heard it or paid much attention to it. And then suddenly it, it came to my attention. I was hearing a song that I had heard before, an American popular song. When you walk through a storm, keep your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. For you'll never walk alone. And I know that was God speaking to me as surely as he speaks to me out of this word. For God has various ways, multitudinous ways of communicating his word to us. And there, an American song in English over the intercom or over the music in a Czech hotel in communist Czechoslovakia, God told me, you're not alone. You know what I did? I got up, put on my coat and my hat, and I walked out a drizzly day. I walked down to the old town square of Prague, which is one of the most beautiful and exciting cities in the world, and I went into a restaurant that was filled with college students from Charles University, and there was music, and there was dancing, and I ate in there, and I walked back to the hotel, slept like a baby, got up the next morning, and flew home. Listen, you'll never walk alone. God will be with you 
when you feel afraid. But God will also be with you when all of your hopes crash and all of your dreams dissolve in the dust of disappointment. When something horrible happens, some personal tornado that strikes your life, unwanted, unexpected, just like the tornadoes that swept through the Southland a few days ago, devastating, harmful, innocent people. You may be in the midst of a personal tornado today. It may have come through an MRI report or through divorce papers being served or through a call late at night, your child's in jail, picked up on a drug charge. I don't know what it is. But storms come into all of our lives at one time or another. Bad things happen to all kinds of folks. Good folks, bad folks, educated, uneducated, rich, poor. The vicissitudes of life are no respecter of persons. It happened to everybody. And there is a man in the New Testament. In, in, in Jesus' uh, last hours, we meet a person who is a symbol, a very impressive symbol of all of the people who feel overlooked or who whose life is shattered because of a, of a critical interruption, of an unwanted event, something they didn't expect, something they didn't want, something they didn't need, and it completely shattered their lives. We read it in the 15th chapter of Mark. Now, this person is, is pretty... Uh, uh, Un, not necessarily unpopular, but unknown in the New Testament. We know the major figures in the final days of our Lord's life. We know about Caiaphas, the high priest. We know about Judas and about Pilate and about Herod and about the soldiers. We know about all of those things. But this man kind of gets overlooked. And yet an incredible event occurred in his life that has meaning for mine and for yours and becomes a symbol of all people who have something happen to them that they don't want. Let me read it to you from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Beginning with, let me begin with the 16th verse. There's just one sentence about the man, uh, but there are others that I'll refer to later. But let me, let me lead up to it. 16th verse. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then wove a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. And falling on their knees, they worshipped him. They made fun of him. They ridiculed him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Here's the sentence. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they 
forced him to carry the cross. You're familiar with that part of the story. Jesus had been up for hours without sleep. He had been beaten. He'd been whipped. He had bled profusely from the cat of nine tails that had lacerated his back. He had been without food. He'd been without water. And he was carrying that cross weighing about 150 pounds. And he stumbled beneath the weight of it. And this African black Jew was compelled to help him carry it. This man was just walking in and just happened to stumble upon this crowd of people. And here was the procession going down what we know as the Via Dolorosa. And Jesus falls and the Roman soldiers walk over and grab this man and pull him out there and make him pick up that cross and carry it the rest of the way to Calvary. Cyrene is in North Africa. He was a black man, probably a Jew, and was in, a, in all probability in Jerusalem to observe the Passover. He probably saved money for, for a lifetime to make this trip. It was a highlight of his life. And here he comes to Jerusalem, and suddenly, His plans for a great experience, for an inspirational moment are interrupted by this horrible event of being forced out to carry a man's cross unexpectedly and unwanted. He's a symbol. He's a symbol of every person who has been forced by events in life to carry burdens they don't want to have. To carry burdens they probably do not deserve. Burdens that are harmful and hurtful and shattering to all of your plans and dreams. Simon of Cyrene suddenly thrust into an unwanted situation. I've already talked to one person this morning who's had an experience just like this. Unfair, unexpected thrust into a situation of a shattering nature. I don't know what took place from that moment on, but God gave us a mind and he gave us imagination and he wants us to start fitting some of these pieces together because there's more to the story and we need to find out how we get to the rest of the story. Here are Jesus and Simon of Cyrene walking side by side. I wonder what Jesus said to him. We don't know. I'm certain Jesus said something to him. Knowing Jesus as I do and seeing a person being thrust into that horrible situation, forced to carry his cross, the compassionate, loving Jesus certainly talked to Simon of Cyrene on the way to the cross. Don't know the words that were said. But something took place. Something happened. I can imagine that Simon, after taking the cross, they took it when they got to to Calvary, to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and he stood there and watched Jesus nailed to that cross. And he was riveted to it. He couldn't move. He himself could not move. He stood there and watched as that cross was lifted. And he heard the words of Jesus from the cross, those seven last words. And he saw Jesus' mother and the women and the Apostle John crying. 
They saw him take, he saw them take him down off the cross and take him and bury him. And it was a shattering experience for him. And he'd been a part of it. Then, I can, in my imagination, hear him getting rumors around town. Hey, have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? They say that. No. no. Yeah, they say that. They say that he rose from the dead. No, I saw him killed. I don't know. Maybe he was one of the 500 Jesus appeared to following his resurrection. He appeared to the disciples a number of times, two on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to Mary, of course. He appeared to his brother, his half-brother, unbelieving up until that moment. He appeared to James. He appeared to over 500 people at one time. He appeared to Simon Peter. He may have been part of the 500 that saw him as a resurrected Lord. Or he may have been at Pentecost when he heard Peter preach and thousands were converted. But Simon of Cyrene, a black African Jew, was converted and became a Christian. How do we know that? Well, because we know it since he came to be a leader in the church in in Antioch. Now, why is Mark so brief here? Mark wrote this gospel. This was the first gospel written. Matthew's the first one in your Bible, but Mark was the first one chronologically uh, written. And he says, and it was written initially primarily for the Christians in Rome, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, now, now, Mark is telling this story, just reminding everybody, because apparently he assumed everybody knew the story. Everybody knew the story because he was writing to Rome, and you'll see in a moment the connection. He was talking about Simon of Cyrene, the, uh, fa- the father of Rufus and Alexander. Uh, Mark assumes you know that. And so he put it in here. We don't know that unless we stop and see the sequence of events. It would be like if I go up to, to Bernie and I say to someone up there, uh, Bubba Stahl, uh, you know Bubba Stahl, whose uh, father Dick was such an active, wonderful member of our church and his mother Louise is still uh, here and active in our church. Oh yeah, sure, sure, sure. We know Bubba. We knew Dick. We know Louise. Well, that was the way it was with Mark. He assumed that everybody knew the relationship between Simon of Cyrene and Rufus uh, and Alexander, the two sons of Simon. Here's what happened. Simon of Cyrene became a Christian and apparently went back to his hometown, back to Cyrene, and personally led his wife and his two sons into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They may have been there with him. We do not know. But they became Christians apparently initially in Jerusalem. And when the persecution arose in the first century and they started um, martyring Christians, many of them were driven out and many of them went to Antioch and started a church in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas later pastored. Timothy was there. Titus was there. Silas was there. Listen to this. In the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, first verse, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, just another name for Simon, called Niger, which was a common name 
a regular name used to describe people of swarthy or dark skin. Simon from Cyrene. Simon from Simon the Niger, the black one, was a teacher in the church at Antioch. Think of that. Would you like to have been in his Sunday school class? I would love to have been in Sunday school class and hear him tell about that experience, to tell about what happened to him, how it shattered his life and broke his heart, but out of it came a tremendous new life for him and for his entire family. And if Jesus said anything to him on the walk, he told them about it. Think about being in Simon of Cyrene's Sunday school class. Also, it's very apparent that the whole family got caught up in the mission ministries of that church because this is where the missionary movement moved out from. Paul and Barnabas and Mark first, and then Paul and Barnabas and Mark and Timothy and Titus and others moved out over the then known world to spread the gospel. Apparently, this family got caught up in that mission involvement and participated in it. Because we turn now to the 16th chapter of the book of Romans when Paul is thanking everybody who has meant a lot to him, who has meant a lot to him and encouraged him and been a source of encouragement to him when he was imprisoned there in Rome and ultimately martyred there in Rome. And in the 13th verse of the 16th chapter, listen, he writes, greet Rufus. That's why Mark referred to Rufus and Alexander, the sons of Simon of Cyrene. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Apparently Simon died, maybe martyred. Tradition says that Alexander was martyred. Cornelius de Lapide, an early writer, An early Christian writer says that Alexander was martyred as a missionary and his brother Rufus was a leader in the church at Rome. Now this story, this incredible event of this unlikely person, this unwanted event, this interruption, out of this came a whole family becoming Christians, becoming missionaries, becoming leaders in the church in Antioch, leaders in the church in Rome, and becoming a part of the ongoing power of the love of God in the world. What an incredible event. And it says two or three things to me that I'd like to share with you. The first thing that impresses me is that God really does work everything together for good to those who love him. Now, everything's not good. I know that and you know that. It's not always sunshine. As the old Spanish proverb says, there is no home which does not at some time know its hush. Sorrows come, sickness comes, financial problems come, family problems come, health. But God doesn't say all that's good. But God says, you give me time. You give me time. You give me three days and I'll turn an ugly cross into a flowering tree. You give me three days and I'll turn death into life and I'll conquer the grave. He'll lead you. It may take more than three days. It may take three years or 30 years. But God will work 
everything ultimately together for good to those who love him. You can count on it in that cross and the resurrection or proof of it. And the day will come. It may take a while, but the day will come when you'll thank God for the interruption. The day may come when you will, as Paul says, glory in the cross. I can look back and some of the things that have happened in our life that were a shattering experience at the time. The death of that little first baby. Oh, I, I can't remember crying like I cried that night. But I look back now and I thank God for that experience. It opened my heart. And I look now and it might, might have meant something different in our family. Mike and Steve and Lisa might not have been born as a part of our family. I look back now and thank God for that. I can look back as you can in some experiences of physical hurt, injury, pain. Look back and say, out of that, I can look now and see that God was in it. And he worked something good out of it. And the event itself wasn't good. And it was painful. But God can take that and turn it into a tree of flowers. That's why we ought to celebrate the cross and the resurrection. It was a horrible, ugly time, but out of it came life. And what God did at the cross, he'll do in your life and in your life and in yours uh, and in mine. The glory in it. There's a little boy that wanted to be a part of the Easter pageant, Easter play at his school. And he just had his heart set on being a part of the cast. And his mother tried to calm him down because she didn't want him to be disappointed because, you know, children want a lot of things that they don't get and they have to learn to accept disappointment and that's not easy for any of us. not easy for adults. And here the little kid just had his heart set on getting a part in that Easter pageant. And his mother didn't want to discourage him, but she tried to kind of calm him down and try to get him ready in case the news was bad. But he wouldn't listen to that. He just said, I, I, I'm going to try out for the play. Well, she went to pick him up after she let him out the day of tryouts and picked him up in the afternoon. And she said she could tell by the way he was walking and running that he'd, that he'd done it. He'd made it. And he jumped in the front seat of the car and she said, well, tell me, tell me about getting into the play. He said, guess what? Guess what? I've been chosen to clap and cheer. Isn't that terrific? He didn't get a speaking part. He got the part of clapping and cheering. You know what? Some of us may not get a speaking part. Some of us may not have that talent, that ability, that gift. But listen, every single one of us who know him can be a part of the crowd that claps and cheers for what Jesus Christ did for us. He works all things together ultimately for good to those who love him. You know, there's another point I want to point out and make that, you know, when, when Simon was carrying that cross for Jesus, people who saw Simon carrying that cross thought Simon was the criminal. That's what, that's what I guess I would have thought. Probably that's what you would have thought. If you'd not seen it happen at the spot where the soldiers made Simon pick up the cross, if I was further down the street and had not seen that, when they got there, I, I would think that the man carrying the cross was the criminal. But I'd have been wrong. And what that reminds me of is that we need to be careful 
that we do not jump to conclusions on the basis of first impressions about anybody. Don't jump to conclusions about people on the basis of first impressions. First impressions have a way of staying, but many of them are also incorrect. He was not the prisoner. Another thing this story says to me is that there's an incredible power in parental influence. The parental power. The influence of a father, particularly, on his family. I'm speaking to a lot of men, and I'm speaking to a culture where men are often not at home, where men are either, they've either left or they're so busy that they spend so little time with their children. Let me say to you, sir, let me say to you as a father, our primary responsibilities as fathers is not only to make a living for our family, but to make a life for our family, to make a life for them. And there's no one that will have influence upon your children like you. No one. Now, this church will do everything we can to teach your children. I mean, they'll be in music, they'll be in retreats, they'll be in pageants like we had here this morning. We'll do everything we can to help your child know the Lord, to help your child grow up to be a Christian. But listen, nothing we do here can substitute for what you can do as a parent in that home. Because listen, long before your children can read the Bible, they can read you. Long before they can read the Bible, they can read you. And long after they've read the Bible... They're going to read you. Do you realize that every one of us in this room is the only Bible some people will ever read? Our lives will be the only Christian word that comes to them, and that's true in the home. Simon of Cyrene led his life, wife to Christ, led his two sons to Christ, and the whole family became part of the early church and helped make a difference in your life and mine to this day. Then one final word. The most powerful force in the world is love. The most powerful force in the world is love. That's what this is all about. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The most powerful force in the world is love. It was love that conquered on resurrection morning. Love conquered hate. Love conquered death. Love conquered eternity. Love crushed to earth, rose again. Love conquers all. Most powerful force in the world is love. I've seen the results of the most powerful physical force. As most of you know, I was in Nagasaki as a Marine shortly after the bomb was dropped on, on Nagasaki on August the 9th, 1945, and I was there for many, many months. It's, un, it's indescribable, the devastation of the atomic bomb. But over the hill from the main area where the bomb exploded at ground zero, where 40,000 were killed instantly and thousands more died later, over the hills on either side were residences that did not get the initial blast of the, of the bomb and who did get heavy doses of radiation, but whose homes were not burned or destroyed or they were not vaporized. We were on Liberty one day walking around the part of uh, Nagasaki that survived and ran into an Englishman 
an Englishman who wanted to use his English, which he hadn't used for many, many years. And he told us his story. He had been, been in the British Navy. He'd been in the British Navy, and he had met a woman in Nagasaki and fell in love with her. When he was discharged from the Navy back in the late 20s and early 30s, I remember the dates about that time, he left England, went to Japan, married her, raised a family there, and lived the rest of his life, or at least his life up until that moment, in Japan, in Nagasaki. And so the three or four of us were just, we were overwhelmed to get to talk to somebody who could tell us what it was like, what happened when that bomb went off. What did you feel? What did you hear? Well, he said the first thing, we heard this incredible explosion. We knew it was a bomb, but we had no idea what it was. Well, no one in the world knew what it was either at that time. But he said then suddenly the sky just seemed to go black with a cloud and with dust. And he said about that moment, I was hit by an unseen force and knocked down. And he said, I got up quickly. And he said, I looked and suddenly I was hit by another and fell down a second time. He said, I got up the third, uh, the next time and I was hit by a third wave and it didn't knock me down, but I felt it just like standing in the ocean and feeling a wave surge against you, an unseen wave. And he said, then there was another less intense and then another and then another. The power of that bomb moving out in concentric circles, like you throw a rock into the pond and the first wave is the largest and then the next is a little smaller and a little smaller and a little smaller. Now listen, that's the way God's resurrection spirit works in a person's life. You hear the message of the resurrection. You hear the spirit of God speaking to your heart and there is an explosion of conviction and of love and of appeal and of invitation and suddenly you feel that surge hit you. That's God knocking upon the door of your heart. What he really wants to do is to knock us off our feet of self-security and pride and self-centeredness onto our knees of worship and acceptance and faith and love. But so often we resist it and we get up and it comes again and we get up and we keep saying no and we keep saying no and we keep saying no and it gets easier and easier and easier to say no. The message still comes. That's why it is so important It is so vitally and eternally important that when the message of God's love comes to you, when you feel it strike your heart, touch your heart, move your heart, respond to it. Respond to it. Don't put it off. Oh, yes, it'll come again, but you won't feel it quite the same because you've done what the Bible says, hardened your heart. Don't harden your heart. You've heard the gospel, maybe some of you many times. Don't put it off any longer. Because you see what will happen if you'll let him into your life? What what will happen when you let him into your life? That new power will regenerate within you a new love bomb. And it will explode in your life. And you'll have a different attitude about God and about yourself and about everybody else. And suddenly his love will begin to emanate through you to someone else, to someone else, to someone else. And that's how Christianity has expanded through these 2,000 years. It's the chain reaction of love emanating from the cross, reaching out, changing my life and your life, and then reaching out through us to others and through others to others and others to others. That's why Christ's invitation is to trust him and to trust him now. He calls upon us and he calls upon us now. And so this is the Lord's time. Large crowd here. 
It's wonderful, but I'd like you to be very, very respectful in these next few moments. This is God's very personal time with somebody in this room. 12 or 15 people came forward this morning at the invitation. Adults, young people, children, many of them accepting Christ as their Savior for the first time. If you've never said yes to him, say yes to him today. If you want to be a part of the life of this church, come. You say, Buckner, what do I have to do to be a part of this church? Just come. You don't have to have references or recommendations. You don't have to take a test. You don't have to do anything more to be a member of this church than Jesus' followers did in the first century. What did they do? They just started following him. That's what it means. He said, follow me, and they got out and followed him. They, they acted upon it. So if you feel God is leading you, maybe to rededicate your life this morning, you come. You may want to come and kneel, return to your seat, not say a word to me. That's fine. But it's God's moment. We'll never have another moment exactly like this. Never. If God's speaking to you, say yes to him today. He's inviting you by this cross. The arms of that cross represent the open arms of our Savior who stands saying, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest and peace and forgiveness and joy and love. Come on. Let's stand. Let's sing. You come.